Y'all ready for 1045? Okay, good, because that's where you're at, so you don't have an option. So, so thankful to be with you this morning. I had someone ask me earlier, are you doing tour guides? And I said, yes, I am. It'll cost you, but if you'd like to go see some of these places we've gone to, I'd be happy to take you for, you know, a certain amount. So anyways, that's not true. Um, this morning, we are continuing our sermon series. We've been kind of traversing from Genesis to Revelation, going throughout the scriptures, hitting all the high points along the way, these really important parts of the story of God and how he relates to his people and ultimately how he relates to us. And during the first three weeks, uh, first two weeks, I hope it's been a really great experience for you. Today, we're going to be hitting another location all along the way. And perhaps some of these locations, you've actually taken time out of your schedule to go and visit as well. I hope so. They're really, really cool places here in our state to go see. My name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb. And it's an honor to be able to open the scriptures up with you this morning and to open our hearts to God to teach us something new today. So the truth is, my family uh, used to road trip quite a bit. And the main reason is because we lived in Indiana when I was a kid, but I had a set of grandparents that lived in Minnesota, and they had a, a really cool little cabin in Wisconsin. And so in the summertime in particular, we would often get in the vehicle, and we would drive 10 hours north to go visit my grandparents and go to the cabin and go fishing and stuff. But that meant you had to drive 10 hours back then to Indiana as well to come back home. And if you are a parent in the room or you are a sibling who ever road trip with your parents in the room, you know one thing to be true, and that is the back seat of a road trip like that is the Wild West, Right? So if you've got siblings, my sister and I, we would sit in the back seat, and um, I, this is a confession that I'm just making this morning. My sister is watching, I think, this service, so Shelby, I'm sorry. But I would, you know, kind of just push the envelope a little bit as we'd be driving along for reasons that I'm bored or whatever else, or perhaps I just wanted to get my sister in trouble. But you know how like that, there was that barrier in the back seat that you, if you crossed with a hand or a foot or something and entered that sovereign space of the person next to you? Um, it would be a problem. And so I would do that from time to time. Perhaps you just hum in the back seat just loud enough that she could hear it, but not loud enough in the car that anybody else could hear what was going on. You know, the, the little things like breathing her air, that kind of stuff. So um, we had issues like this sometimes driving because when you're traversing in a vehicle for 10 hours and you're in the back seat, I mean, it's, it's the perfect makeup for lawless activity. And so this is what would go down between my sister and myself. And I would push the envelope just enough that eventually my parents would respond because my sister would begin yelling and getting upset. And of course, I would, I would respond with them and say, I can't believe you would respond in this kind of way either. What is going on? Why are you so upset? You know, and just kind of like pile on whatever my parents were saying and make sure that she got in trouble. And for that, I'm very, very sorry. But it's the nature of being on road trips. If you have siblings, this is gonna happen. There's gonna be fights. I mean, how many times as a parent you're driving along and what's the only question that comes to the back seat? Are we there yet? Are we there? I mean, think of all the beauties of the road trip with family. That's what we've been experiencing over the past few weeks. So as we've been traveling through the scriptures, we've taken time to stop at these really important parts along the way. And the part we're going to stop at uh, this morning is a really important part, but actually kind of a low, pe- low point of this, uh, this travel that we're going through. It's actually a time where chaos reigned within kind of the Israelite people. They were at conflict with themselves, at conflict with others, at conflict with God. And we're going to be catching up uh, today, and I need to catch you up from the past couple of weeks really quickly. So if you've not been here during this sermon series, we're going to cover like hundreds of years of Israelite history in like 30 seconds. So hang on. But it's going to get us to where we are today. So it began two weeks ago. If you remember, Pastor Chad gave a great message out of Genesis chapter 1 through 3 as God created everything. All things that we are seen, all things that are unseen, God created all things and placed responsibility and expectation upon humankind to be the people who would steward and take care of all that he has made, to take it forward. But as we learn from the scriptures and in chapter three of Genesis, these people, these first humans, they don't live in covenant relationship with God, they disobey. 
And in disobedience, sin enters the world and begins to wreak havoc all through the rest of the chapters of Genesis. Sin continues to spiral out of control and out of control from a small thing to a much, much larger, larger thing, eventually impacting the entire world. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, God comes and speaks to a particular individual. His name is Abraham. He says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to do something in you and your family. I'm going to bless you so that you might be a blessing to the world. The things that I'm going to do in you and through your family line is going to be a blessing to the world and restore all the things that have been broken by sin. That's the promise that God gives Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a son, among others, named Joseph. And through a very crazy turn of events, you can read about it in Genesis if you'd like to, Joseph is sold into slavery into Egypt. At that point in time, Egypt was the America of the world, over a majorly powerful nation. Joseph ends up there, and his family comes to join in there to escape a famine. Joseph luckily forgives his family for the things they've done to him, and the Israelite people begin to live in Egypt, and all is good until it's not. Because a new Pharaoh comes to town who doesn't know Joseph, who doesn't know his family, and begins to put the Israelite people and make them slaves in Egypt. And it becomes very, very uncomfortable. Eventually, God sends a man named Moses who comes and rescues the Israelite people out of Egypt, leads them across the Red Sea. We visited last week as God gives the Israelite people then in the wilderness 10 commandments to live by, to live in right relationship with him, right relationship with one another, to make sure that never again would they find themselves in the place they found themselves in Egypt and they would never treat anybody else that way as well. God gives them a way to live. Now, we're going to look at now is after these people have these Ten Commandments, they, of course, as often happens in the Scriptures and in our own lives, they don't stay true to their end of the bargain. In fact, they don't stay in covenant relationship with God. And God said, if you do, you'll be my treasured possession. You'll be a nation lifted up before all other nations to show what it looks like to live in a relationship with me. And they don't do it. So at this point in the scriptures, we find the Israelite people have entered into a place called the promised land, the scripture calls it. And in this location, God intends to grow his relationship with his people to bless the entire world. But the problem is, once again, they don't stay in right relationship with God. They give in to negative influences around them, particular pagan nations that are around them. All the tribes of Israel descend into a spiral of sin and destruction that plays out through a book called Judges in the Old Testament. There's violence, there's pain, and there's chaos. And the Israelite kind of land they lived in becomes the Wild West. Anything goes. God sends a number of judges, people to come to call them back into right relationship with him, to rebuke them and to call them to repentance, but they don't. And the book of Judges says it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Now the very last verse of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, shows us where all this have, has come to. It's a sobering passage for us this morning because it's not just about the people in the Old Testament, it's also about us today. Here's what it says in Judges 21, 25, very end of the whole book. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Some translations say it this way. In Israel, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Meaning everyone was living for themselves. There was no authority they were looking to anymore. And because of that, it spiraled out of control until eventually we end up at the very last verse of this book. You see, we went to the Capitol in downtown Columbia this week for a particular reason. Because ultimately, the, the overview that we're looking at here, the place that we've come to on this road trip is about leadership. You know, the Capitol building in downtown is a place that represents our state government. It's where the South Carolina General Assembly, the offices of governor, lieutenant governor, they all reside there. It's a place that symbolizes rule, reign, and governance. 
And the writers of the Old Testament, as they write this particular part of the story, they are part, they're pointing to a far-reaching effect of having authority or actually the lack thereof within the people of God. Because in those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They neglected the leadership of God in their lives. There was no guiding authority, and just like being in the back seat of a long car ride with your siblings outside the, the long-reaching arm of a parent, when you have no authority, things escalate quickly. When there is no authority, things escalate quickly. When I was in fourth grade, my family, some of my family lived in Kentucky, and so we would go visit them. And um, one particular day, I went as a fourth grade kid to see my aunt and uncle. They lived on a really big farm in Kentucky. They had cattle on the farm, and they, there was also tobacco that they raised on the farm. And so if you've ever been through Kentucky, kind of dotting the landscape are these big black barns where they would hang tobacco to dry the tobacco to be able to sell it then. And so on this farm, there was a big black barn just like that that was full of $80,000 probably of tobacco hanging inside of it, all drying. So this particular day, we're at my aunt and uncle's house. I have an older cousin named Dan. I have a younger cousin named Celesta. And we were told, the three of us, to go out and mow the yard. So we said, okay, we'll go mow the yard. So we walked out to the black barn where the, the riding lawnmower was. But the problem was when we got to the riding lawnmower, it was out of gas. That's not a problem because there was a gas tank right there to fill it back up with gas. And so my cousin Dan grabbed the gas tank and began to fill up the tank on the lawnmower. And I'm a fourth grade kid, and I still happen to have a pack of matches in my pocket. I know. So... Again, I'm in fourth grade. This is not prescriptive. This is descriptive for any children in the room. Okay, so I had a pack of matches in my, in my pocket. I'm a fourth grade kid. And for whatever reason, we're filling this lawnmower up. Like, hey, listen, you know what we should do? Let's just dig a hole in the dirt right over here and, and put some gas in it, and then we'll light it. Because it sounds like something to do, you know? So, so we did. So we walked over here, and we dug a little hole in the dirt, and we poured some gasoline in there. And then I had my patch, pack of matches. I pulled it out, and I lit it. And as soon as we lit that a little bit of gas in this nice little hole far away from everything else. Flames literally jumped through the air on fumes and landed inside of the gas tank that we left the top of off of the lawnmower. And it began to shoot like a flamethrower, like 10 feet in the air, just shooting flames. This never happened to me before. So, and nor my cousins. And so we, we didn't know how to respond. And so we looked at each other and my, my older cousin Dan said, you stay here, I'm getting water. I'm like, I'm not staying here. So we all ran out of the barn and ran to another barn to get water in a, in a bucket as quickly as we could. And so we're running, the thing's flaming up inside, and we're running through the yard until the parents could see us because they were in the house. And when we got there, we were like, hi. And then they couldn't see us, and so we ran some more. And we got all the way to the barn, we filled this 10-gallon bucket full of water. We ran back until they could see us. Hey, we're just hanging out as cousins. And then we got all the way back to the barn, ran inside, dumped the water on top of the lawnmower, and put the whole thing out. But the problem was it had melted everything on the lawnmower, all the wires, anything plastic. Luckily, it didn't catch all the tobacco on fire in the black barn and burn the whole thing down. That had been a whole other story altogether. So the lawnmower all melted. We have no idea what to do at this point in time. And so we were looking at each other. And my older cousin, he's two years older than me. I'm a fourth grader. He's like two or three years older than me. And he's a genius. So he said, here's what we'll do. When we go inside, we'll tell our parents that while we were filling it with gas, the spark plug, plug sparked and it lit everything on fire. I'm like, that is such a good idea. <laughs> but my cousin Celesta, who's younger than me, instantly she's like, I'm not doing it. I'm not lying. Well, I guess you are. Or we'll kill you. So she's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And like, we're, we're walking inside. We're going straight upstairs. You don't talk to anybody. We'll get upstairs and we'll figure this thing out. Okay, so 
So Dan goes first, then me, and then Celeste. So we walk in the house, we're like, hey, and we go straight upstairs, except Celeste's sniffling the entire way walking in the door. So instantly, my uncle knew something was up. So he calls her over, and as soon as she gets to the kitchen, she's singing like a bird. She's like, we did it, we did it. And she confesses the whole thing. And so sure enough, we had to pay for everything that had melted on the lawnmower, take care of all the things. I think my cousin Dan took the brunt of it, but in the end, we all had to pay something to make sure that it was right. You see, when parents, if you're a parent in the room, if you're a cousin in the room, you know that if you have cousins who get together outside of any kind of authority for about seven minutes, there's so much damage that could be done. And it escalates quickly. And in fact, in 10 minutes, we went from mowing the yard to nearly burning down $80,000 worth of tobacco in a barn. And here's why. Without authority, things escalate quickly. And I would argue this morning that we live in a world today that easily the last words that were written in Judges can be written to us. There was no king at that point in time. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We, we live in a world today, I would argue, where anything within culture that seems like a boundary, a guiding principle, a rule, a law, any kind of authority, a limit, seen as a limit or a hindrance. It's something to be pushed back on or disregarded or canceled. And I would argue that the church has taken the brunt of much of this. And people's view of what God is like, whatever view they have, is something that, is, that has been seen as something that is a threat that should be pushed back on. And here's just my observation. No matter what end of the political spectrum, the cultural spectrum, the religious spectrum that you are on, you find yourselves, we decide that we want to live with our own authority. If we decide that, then our lives, without guiding principles, simply escalate into chaos pretty quickly. It's just something I've seen in my own life, and I've seen it in the world around me. The Bible tells us that at the very end of Judges, all this has spun out of control for Israel. Sin has continued to run rampant. Eventually, God raises up in this lawless spiral a man named Samuel. Now, chronologically, the Bible goes from Judges to 1 Samuel. There's books between there in the Bible, but chronologically, it jumps right to 1 Samuel. And so in 1 Samuel, we're introduced to this man named Samuel. Here's what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 3, 19 through 21. It says, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. So we know from the beginning of 1 Samuel, this boy Samuel, he is born, and from the time he is born, he is given over to the temple to grow up there. Now, he, he's raised under this man named Eli, who's his mentor, and helping, guiding him in his leadership until this particular time, while Samuel steps into leadership for Israel's history. And so on the heels of the people of God being disunified, being chaotic, Samuel steps in as a prophet for the Lord, the Bible says. Now, a prophet and the Old Testament had a very specific role to play. A prophet is a representative for God who brings divinely inspired instruction. A prophet is someone who speaks on God's behalf to God's people to give them instruction, to give them guidance, at time to rebuke them, to call them to confession, to bring them back in right relationship with one another and with God. This was the prophet's role. And prophets had a very important role in the Old Testament because of the way Israel governed themselves. I want to try to describe it the best I can. They were guided and legislated, the Israelite people, under the authority of God directly. So at this point in time, there was no king. They were living under the rule and authority of God through priests and through prophets. As God spoke, that's the way they were supposed to live. 
but they had lived in a disobedience for a very long time. They would bring divine warnings, they would bring rebuke, that the people might put their place, their hope and trust in God once again. This was Samuel's role for the Hebrew people in 1 Samuel chapter three. Now, after Samuel had been doing this for the Israelite people, traveling from Dan to Beersheba, he had been judging and, and helping keep things in order at this point in time. After a long time, the elders of Israel come to, the, to Samuel and speak to him on behalf of the Israelite people. And here's what they say to him in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4 through 5. They gather to Samuel and they say, So all the old elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and Ramah. They said to him, You are old. Ouch. You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Appoint a king to lead us, just like all the other nations. Now there's a couple things that the elders bring to Samuel, and they bring him up as grievances. The first one is this, Samuel apparently is old. Okay, so I don't, I'm not trying to offend anybody in the room, it's just what the Bible says. Samuel, you're old. And not only that, but your sons, we don't trust them. Which is true. Samuel's sons were horrible, despicable people. They were doing all kinds of things under Samuel's leadership that was actually very much against God. And these people were noticing it. We don't trust them, Samuel. So you're old. We don't like your kids. And then also, Samuel, we no longer want to answer to God. We, we want a different king. We want an earthly king. We want a king just like all the other nations. So the Israelite people at this point in time, they're asking for a specific thing. They want to move from being a theocracy now to a monarchy. Now, a theocracy is a group of people who govern themselves through priests and prophets under the rule directly from God. That's a theocracy. A monarchy is a government that is formed around one supreme authority and it rests on one individual. So Israel said, we don't want God to be our king anymore. We want a king just like all the other nations. We want one person that we can see and touch and that we can answer to. If you remember from last week, there's something that is said, a phrase over and over again in last week's discussion that God has with the Israelite people and with Moses. And he says this to them. I'm offering you covenantal relationship. To stay true to your end, I will always stay faithful to mine. And if you live in covenant relationship with me, you'll be my treasured possession. You'll be a holy nation. You'll be a nation set apart to, as a billboard to show what it looks like to live in right relationship with God. That was the goal. So you live in covenant relationship with me. You'll be a nation that is set apart from every other nation. Do you notice what they're asking for here? They don't want to do what God has asked them to do. We don't want to be a nation separate from every other one. We want to be a nation just like everyone else. Inevitably, what they're asking for is we want to look and act and live like everyone else around us. Here's a core conviction of mine. Because I don't believe this message is just for the Israelite people. I believe it's for us today as well. See, God's goal for his people has never changed from the very beginning. It's never changed. You see, God's goal for us, if we consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus, to be Christians, I don't mean to shock you, but that means that we are meant to stand out. Do you hear me? If you're students in the room and you're about to go back to school, please hear me. If you are a Christian, you should not look like everybody else in your classroom. Act like everyone else in your classroom. Speak, so forth. For those of us who live in this Lexington area, you, you should look differently than people around you. The way you speak to people should sound different from the world around you. Your marriages should look different from the marriages around you. 
The way you treat people should look different. It should set you apart. The way you spend your time and resources should set you apart. This means that there are things that we cannot go along with. There are things that we cannot agree with, not be complicit in or promote because it would detour from the mandate given to us in the garden to steward God's creation and to steward it well. It would be a deviation from a covenantal relationship with God that he's invited us into. It would be a disregard of God's authority in our life as our supreme king, the one authority that we answer to. We are meant to stand out. This would also mean this, that potentially the things that we care about will be different from everyone else around us. As Christians, there are things that should matter to us, like hungry children in our community, human trafficking, poverty, racial reconciliation, sharing the gospel. These should be important things to us, and it will make you look different than the world around you, and that is not a bad thing. It's actually the whole point. That you would be God's treasure possession, a holy nation called the church, there'd be a billboard for what it looks like to live a right relationship with God. I realize this is a very strong thing to say, but I wanna be very clear with you this morning. I don't believe we have the luxury to play games with our faith anymore. We just don't. There's far too much at stake. And it has everything to do with the authority that we see within our life. There are two major shifts that happen here, and the first shift that takes place has to do with the authority that people in the Israelite people are, are bringing upon themselves and seeing as being over them. First, there is an authority shift that takes place. The Israelite people no longer want to answer to God. They want to answer to an individual that they can see and they can touch. They want an earthly king. If you know anything about the story of the Bible, the king they end up with is a man named Saul. You may have heard of Saul, the Old Testament one, not the new, just want to be clear. Old Testament Saul is the one that becomes the first king. And he looks like a king. I mean, he's a military leader. He's good looking. He's got a commanding presence. I mean, everybody that would have looked at him would be like, that's a king. That's a guy we want to lead us. But what I've found in my life and what I see played out before me within the scriptures is oftentimes we're looking for someone that has qualities that we want for ourselves. We want to look commanding. We want to look good. We want to have all these things. And so he should be the one that should lead us. But what if there are better qualities to look for? better qualities to vote for than just strong and powerful. In fact, I think this is one of the reasons that when Jesus shows up on the scene, the one true king, the final king who would make all things right, people missed him in his kingship. Here's why. They were looking for a king that looked like Saul, not one that looked like Jesus. Because he was humble, sacrificial, unassuming, and scholars believe that the reason these elders come to Samuel and say, we want a king just like all the other nations, there's a couple of reasons. And the first one is this, it's fear. There's a nation known as the Philistines who lived around that area that were causing all kinds of havoc. It's a great story if you want to go back and read it a little bit. It's actually a very sad story, but it's a great story to read if you want to. And the Philistines were awful people and they were terrified of them. And so what better thing to do than to have a king who looks strong, who looks big, who looks bad, who finally comes and leads us and, and saves us from the Philistines. That's what the people wanted. But I think there's an even bigger reason why they were looking for someone that was in the flesh that could lead them. And I think it's the same reason that we look for it oftentimes too, is because a lot of times we are looking for someone to blame when things don't go our way. We're looking for someone to lay the blame on, flesh and blood, rather than a divine one, to be able to say, this is the problem, and you're the problem. 
Now, I know that nobody in this room has ever blamed government for anything that has not gone right in your life. That's a joke. It just depends on what political party's in charge or what the political climate might be. It happens on all sides. But the problem is oftentimes we're looking for someone to blame because things are not going our way, but God has placed within us the responsibility to live our life under his authority to begin with. But it's easier to blame somebody else, to pass it on rather than take it on ourselves. We've been, we've been doing it for a very long time. If you remember in Genesis chapter one that Chad taught us about two weeks ago, the first stop that we had on this road trip, you have God who creates everything. You have Adam and Eve. They're invited in a relationship with God. They disobey God. They eat of the tree, the one place that God said you have to avoid. The Bible says God comes back to the garden looking for them, and they're doing what? They're hiding. It's one of the saddest passages in all the scriptures. They're, they're hiding from God. God finds them, and he asks a very simple question. Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to? And Adam's the first one to speak up. Guess what he says? Well, God, the woman that you gave me, she's the one who tempted me to eat the apple. Men, right? Adam's like, listen, he's not just blaming Eve. He's blaming who? God. You gave me Eve, and apparently she thought the apple was good. She tempted me. I couldn't say no. And so here we are. Then God turns to Eve, and what's she do? She blames too. It was the serpent who tempted me to eat the apple. That's why I ate of the apple, and that's why Adam... You see the blame game? We, we do it all the time. And when we don't see the authority that God has placed within us, the responsibility to steward creation, to take it forward, to live in covenantal relationship with him, we will always be looking for someone else to blame as opposed to stepping up and living in the way that God has called us to as a set-apart people, as a billboard for what it looks like to live in right relationship with God. You see, when we see our ultimate authority as a group of people living in Washington, D.C. or downtown Columbia, then we ultimately will just blame them or praise them based upon what happens and wait for them to fix everything that's going on. Please hear me. I'm not saying we don't live under government. It's a good thing. But our ultimate authority is Jesus Christ. He's the true king. And this means if we live in relationship to that, we vote, we do our civil, uh, civic duties, we do all the things that we're supposed to, but the God-given responsibility placed inside of us to steward creation, that means every person, every tree, every family, every city, every workplace, every schoolroom. God wants us to live in a way that honors him and honors people. Again, this first shift is a shift in authority, and it spells out trouble for the Israelite people the rest of the Old Testament until finally the one true king comes named Jesus, who makes all things right. All the terrible kings they have, at Saul and on after, primes the pump for them to say, finally, we're ready for a king who will lead us well and who will lead us with love. The second shift is this. It's a shift of priority. You see, God's priority for his people has always been that we would live as a conduit of blessing to the world. Genesis 12, God speaks to Abraham. Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna bless your family that you might be a blessing to the entire world. You're a conduit. You're not a container for God's blessing. It's meant to go through you. That's the priority from the very beginning. God says, live in relationship with me and I will use you to bless the world. But there's a new priority that comes to place here. And this new priority is this. We don't want to be a nation lifted up before all, all other nations. We want to be a nation like everyone else. We want similar leadership, and eventually we want similar lifestyle. That's what we want. 
So Samuel, you're getting the boot because you're old. We don't like your kids. We want a new king. So give it to us now. Now, I notice the same shift that happens in my own life too. My wife and I, we feel this sometimes where there's a shift in priority that can take place. There's something called social media. I don't know if you've ever heard of it before, but um, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. And probably the majority of people in the room are on it in some kind of way. Social media has a way of becoming an authority within our life. And Jen and I oftentimes have to like check ourselves on this because you know, we see all these other families that function so well. They're like perfect families and they're so different from like mine. And we begin to believe something's wrong. We're, we gotta do different things to get to that because we're seeing it on social media, the way it works with their family. Their house, when they take pictures, the house behind them is always so neatly put together. There's no dishes. There's no laundry strewn across the floor. Their kids have clothes on. Like <laughs> Everything looks perfect. And we have to take pictures like super close up because if you see anything behind it, it'll betray everything that we're trying to portray, you know? I mean, social media does this for us. And if we're not careful, we will find an authority from social media that'll cause us to live certain kinds of ways and we will, that will call the shots, not Jesus. We'll begin to live to have all these things. We see people that buy nice things. We see that we should buy nice things. Let's buy nice things too. Our kids, they don't listen like those other people's kids. We, we have to do something different to get our kids to listen. You name it. There's all these things. And there's anxiety and frustration that bubbles up because this kind of authority does this to us. It feels like we, we can never really make it. Here's what, I'm, here's what I'm convinced of. Only because I've seen it in my life and I've seen it in lives around me. That when we look for any form of authority outside of Jesus, it's always going to be something that's going to cost us something. We're gonna feel it. And there's a warning in 1 Samuel chapter eight of this exact thing. The elders come to Samuel, we don't like you, you're old, we don't like your kids, we want a new king. And God says to Samuel, go ahead and give them what they want. Give them what they want. Here's what it says in 1 Samuel chapter eight, verse six through 18. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, it's not you they have rejected, they have rejected me as king, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day. Since Egypt, this has been going on, they continue to push back, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing it to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel says, okay, you want a king like all the other nations? Here's what it's gonna cost. Ultimately, when there's other authorities, social media, maybe there's a person in your life and they say a certain thing, when they say this certain thing, it causes you to jump every time. You can't stop it. You see them as an authority within your life. Maybe it's not healthy. It's a bad thing. It's gonna cost us something. 
And here's why. All throughout the scriptures, we see God lead his people. God leads his people in a certain kind of way over and over again, inviting them into covenant relationship. Even when they turn their back, God says, I will still love you and I invite you back in because God ultimately leaves with love. But this king, he's gonna lead with leverage. God's looking out for God's people, their best interest always. But this new king that you're wanting that's gonna come in, he's gonna look out for his interests. And you'll feel the pain of it. And not only Saul, but every other king to come behind him until finally we come to the one true king, a better king who would come named Jesus. And when Jesus comes to lead us, he leads with agape love, self-sacrificing love. His leadership looks like giving himself on a cross and dying for the sins of the world. That's a true king. See, this is what concerns me. I'm afraid that many of us who consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus, even though we would say that Jesus is king of our lives, our daily lives would betray us. Even though we say that we live under Jesus' rule and reign, we, we don't actually live that way. I think this is because a lot of us know a lot about Jesus and we talk a lot about Jesus, but we have never truly submitted to Jesus. I want to try to say this as clear as I possibly can. Being a follower of Jesus is not about church attendance. Being a follower of Jesus is not about reading your Bible every day or praying every day. It's an aspect of it, but it's not what it's about. Being a follower of Jesus is about being submitted to the leadership and the authority of Jesus Christ in your life, every aspect of your life. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that's why this particular discussion I believe to be so important because ultimately this is not, hear me, this is not a political decision or discussion. This is a personal decision. It has to do with the authority that you allow into your life to rule and reign over your heart. The story of the Israelite people should be a warning to us to take a sober assessment of how we actually live and who we bow to. The founder of Methodism, John Wesley, he tells this story. He writes about how he had been a pastor for a long time, and, and actually he had been in England, and eventually he had come over to the colonies at that point, to Georgia in particular, and he was sharing the gospel and doing all these things. And then eventually on a trip from across the, across the ocean, the ship that he's on comes into this great storm. It's this really big storm that's potentially gonna capsize the boat and kill everybody, and John Wesley is terrified. Again, he's been a pastor for quite a while at this point in time. He's, he's terrified to lose his life. He's on this ship and he writes that he comes across some individuals and they're, they're called Moravians. They're Christian Moravians. He has a conversation with them and they're, they're praising God in the middle of the storm and he is convicted to his heart. He says he realizes that he's never actually had a conversion experience. He's been a pastor for a long time. He's talked about God for a long time, but he himself has never had a conversion experience. He was terrified to lose his life and they had no fear because they knew who was the ultimate authority. Not long after Wesley makes it through this, he goes to a place called Aldersgate and he has this encounter with God where God transforms his heart. He writes this. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley had a true conversion experience, a transformation. It went from his head to his heart. 
Years ago, my family was back in Kentucky visiting family once again. There's a very large church in Lexington, Kentucky. And we went to church there on a Sunday morning. And the pastor came out, and I really liked this pastor. I've read a book of his, and I've watched sermons from him, and I've really admired him for a long time. And he walks out on the stage to preach, and I was excited to hear his message. But the first thing he says when he walks out on the stage, he says to his, his congregation, I need to make a confession. So I've been a pastor for a long time, and he had been for a very long time. And he said, but I realized recently that I had never fully submitted my whole heart to Christ. He said, last weekend, my family, me, and a few folks from the church, we came down to a pond here on the church campus, and I was baptized. And my life's been changed. I was like, what? You've written books. Like, you've been a pastor for a while. Now you're getting baptized? But I realized what he was saying. I knew a lot about God. I've been in the church for a long time. I've even done good things for him. But I never had a conversion experience where I submitted my heart to him as my king, as my authority. And that's what happened. Here's what I'm convinced of this morning. Every one of us in this room, we have a throne on our hearts. Within our heart, there's a throne. And whoever sits on that throne, whoever has authority on that throne, that is the person that ultimately, or the thing that ultimately will determine how we live our life, how we speak to our spouses, how we treat our children, how we handle our careers, what we do on the weekend, everything. It's all within the purview of this leadership. So I want to be clear this morning. I don't think we can talk about all of this and not give an opportunity for maybe some in the room who have been in the church your whole life. Aside from judgment, this is not a judgment thing. Aside from any kind of shame, I wanna give an opportunity for anyone in the room who's just said, listen, I've known Jesus, I've known about him, but I have never had a conversion experience, responded to his love and grace, to live under his rule and his reign in my life. It's that simple. And so I wanna pray for us this morning. And I want to give that opportunity. So if you would join me, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to just confess to you that there have been times in my life where I have not lived under your authority. That I've found all kinds of other things that I care more about at the time that dictate the way I live my life, the things that I value, the way that I speak and so forth. And I'm sorry. Ask for your forgiveness, God. And I commit once again to covenantal relationship with you. So God, I pray that in this room, maybe there's somebody else who feels the same kind of way, that there have been these times where we've been far from you, we've not lived in relationship with you, we've not lived under your authority, it's affected our marriage, it's affected our children, it's affected our workplace, it's affected everything. This morning, God, I think because you are so gracious and you are so kind, you offer us once again an opportunity to live in right relationship with you. And so while I'm praying, just all eyes closed, if anybody this morning feels like they want to make this decision to live under the leadership of Jesus, I'm just going to ask you boldly, without any kind of shame or guilt or anything, would you just stand? I want to pray for you this morning. Would you just stand up in your, in your seat right now, wherever you are? If you want to live under the rule and authority of Jesus, just do it. No shame, no guilt. Don't look around. This is between you and the Lord. Would you just stand? Amen. Anybody else? Amen.
we're giving our hearts to God. We're giving our hearts to Jesus to lead us, to guide us. Nothing else. Last chance, if you want to stand this morning, I want to pray for you. Just be bold. Jesus, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for, for the boldness of heart of every individual who stood here this morning. I pray, Father, that you would see their lives. You would know them individually. You would love them. And I pray, God, this would be a transforming experience for them going forward. But as they make decisions, that they live their life, God, they would do so in relationship with you. So God, I pray you would free them from sin. I pray you would awaken them to new life in you. Thank you for your love, God. Thank you for leading us with love. Thank you for your gracious nature. Thank you for caring about us. So Father, I pray a blessing over every individual here this morning, seated or standing. I pray, God, you would lead us forward that we might be a people, a church that loves you well. We are thankful, God, for your grace and for your mercy. It's in your name that we pray. And everyone said, amen.